We're continuing our way through the book of Acts this morning, looking at Peter. We're shifting away from Paul and looking at Peter, and so I want to invite you this morning, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 32 to 43, closing out, closing out the chapter. That last song we sang, Jesus Touched Me. That is the reality of the text that is before us this morning. We encounter the Apostle Peter, and as we look carefully at what he is doing, we recognize when we see him ministering and serving that indeed he has been with Jesus. I just want to remind you of uh, two passages, two different miracles that are performed here. If you would, look with me. I'm going to read it one more time, just briefly. Acts 9, beginning in verse 32, and we'll read the scripture And then we will pray and ask for the Lord's help to understand what's going on in this text. And then we'll get to work. If you would, just look with me. Verse 32, as Peter was, went here and there among them all, he came down to the saints who, were, who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And you jump down to verse 36. It says, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and he went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down, and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. In church, let's bow and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we just thank you so much for this word God, we've always known that you are a God who works miracles, that you are a God who can heal when you will to do so, Lord. We also thank you, Lord, not for the miracles that were worked in this passage, which remind us and reassure us of your, your sovereignty and your power over even sickness and death. But we thank you, Lord, for the example that Peter sets before us, and more importantly, the way that he points the glory and the honor back to you. Father, as we look at this text this morning, I pray that all of us who are gathered here worshiping you, that all this great church that you have brought together would be reminded that in all that we do, whether as students or professionals, whether working in the legal profession or as a doctor or as a laborer, whatever your calling is upon our lives, in whatever way we may minister or serve any other person around us, help us, Lord, to do so, always mindful of the fact that we belong to you, and that any good that comes from our hands should also be properly reflective of you and your glory. Help us to understand that this morning, we pray, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. There's a small town called Independence. It's uh, about halfway between, um, in Texas, it's about halfway between Bremerton and Bryant, Texas. There's about an hour's difference there, and so you go 30 minutes and there's a little town Uh, there was a period of time in which uh, Shanti was living in Bryan, Texas, and I was living in Bremerton, Texas, and we would sometimes meet there in Independence. Uh, we'd meet halfway. 
Um, regularly, we would stop off at Independence as we were traveling back and forth. And there was a little little antique shop there. They called it Rose's Antique Emporium. Eh, the antiques were so-so. They had some nice pieces there. But what really set the place apart was the fact that surrounding Rose's Antique Emporium were fields upon fields upon fields of blue bonnets and Indian paintbrushes and lots of other just breathtaking wildflowers that just would bloom every spring and would last for weeks and weeks on end. We would routinely hike out into the fields around this antique shop, and we would sit amongst the blue bonnets and the Indian paintbrushes, and such a beautiful fragrance, it was such a wonderful, sweet smell that we encountered. One time as we were doing this, my wife plucked a blue bonnet. She had a handkerchief with her, and she put that blue bonnet in the handkerchief and folded it away and put it in her purse. And of course, we're young college students who are on the go, 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 and so we forgot about it. And of course, ladies, you know, if it goes into the purse, it can be like a black hole. Everything just kind of goes in there, and you just sort of, it just consumes everything, and you have to kind of shuffle through every couple of years and remind yourself of what you've put in there. So uh, we had done that. A couple of years later, Shanti was emptying out her purse, and out comes this handkerchief with this crushed blue bonnet. And of course, we all opened up the blue bonnet, and the, we opened up the handkerchief, and the blue bonnet was long since dead. Just a dried out, crumbled thing, kind of dumped it into the, uh, into the trash can there. But what was amazing was when we held up that blue bonnet, when we held up that handkerchief, we could still smell the blue bonnet from years before. It was clear that the scent of that blue bonnet had been embedded into that handkerchief. This morning, as we look at this text, what I want you to see is not Peter. I want you to see Jesus. And what I want you to take away from this text this morning is that when we look at Jesus, when we look at Peter and how he's ministering to these different individuals in the coastal plains of Israel, Lydda and Joppa specifically, what stands out to us is that Peter is behaving just like Christ. And as we look at him, it is clear that Peter has been with Christ. And my prayer for you this morning, First Baptist Church, as we dive into this text, is that you would be reminded to walk with the Lord and to imitate him, that others, when they look at your life, will be able to say, this person clearly has been with Jesus. Look with me now, verse 32. We've transitioned away from Saul, his conversion, and his ministry briefly there in Jerusalem. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he turns our attention back to Peter. And it says in verse 32, Peter went here and there among them all. So he's got this itinerant preaching ministry. He's traveling around. He's preaching to the different churches in the region. It says he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. This is a coast, a coastal town. And there he found a man named Aeneas who was bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. He encounters there in this city a man who's paralyzed. And he says to him, he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And I want you to look at this next phrase very specifically. He says, rise and make your bed. Now, the miracle of itself is phenomenal. Of course, we can be reminded of the fact that Jesus heals. He is in the business of performing miracles. All of that is true. But what really ought to grab your attention is that particular phrase. He says, rise up, 
take up your bed or make up your bed, depending on which translation you're working from. And the reason why that is particularly significant to us this morning is because those are not Peter's words. Those are not his words. Sure, he says them. He says them, but he's actually quoting Jesus. Don't flip there, but just listen. In John chapter 5, there is a similar account of a man being healed who was paralyzed. In John 5, verses 5 to 9, the Apostle John tells us that there was a man living there who had been an invalid, that is crippled, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had been there a long time, he said to the man, he said, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. There was a pool of water there. I won't get into the specifics, but there was a custom that if you got dipped in this water, you might, you might get healed. Uh, it was reported there was an angel that would sort of heal the first person that got, that got dunked in. But as a cripple and with no family members, there was no one to help put him in the water. So he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down into the water ahead of me. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And his response is, boy, I wish I could, but I don't have anyone to help me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Notice that expression, take up your bed. What does Peter say? Look back at Acts. He says to him, Aeneas, Christ heals you. Rise and make or take up your bed. These accounts are very similar, nearly identical. Crippled, invalids, paralyzed men. In the one instance, Jesus says, do you want him to be healed? He says, I wish I could. No one's here to help me. And he says, take up your bed and walk. Peter, speaking to this fellow, Aeneas, says, take up your bed and walk. In both instances, the phrase is used, the expression is used, take up your bed and walk. Jesus said it first, Peter encounters a man nearly in the same situation as the man that Jesus encountered. And when he performs the miracle, he says the exact same thing as his master said before him. You say, that's fascinating, pastor, but I think it's just a coincidence. I would agree with you, purely coincidental, if it were not for the very next miracle. Luke is trying to draw our attention to something here. Beginning in verse 36, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, it says, she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing him the tunics and the other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Now look at this, verse 40. But Peter put them all outside. They're in an upper room. Okay, note that. Peter puts them all outside the upper room. He's like, okay, that's enough of the tunics and all this good stuff that she did. That's enough. You guys stand outside the room. Go away. And it says he put them all outside, and he knelt down, and he prayed. So he gets on his knees. He prays. Obviously, he's praying to Christ. And turning to the body, which is Tabitha, he says, Tabitha, arise. Notice that. Arise. Get up. Arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Look at verse 41. 
He gave her his hand and he raised her up. That is, he gave her his hand and he helped her get up. She has been raised from the dead back to life. Now, again, what is significant about this is that it parallels nearly perfectly a similar kind of miracle that Jesus works. Back in Mark chapter 5, again, don't flip there, just listen. The, uh, the, the gospel writer Mark tells us in verse 38 that they came to a particular house. This is Jesus and the apostles in their travels. They came to a particular house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. There's a lot of weeping going on, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? They're weeping for a child who has died. Jesus says, the child isn't dead, but just sleeping. And of course, they laugh at him. (laughs) Okay, whatever. She's clearly dead. So he puts them all outside, Mark tells us. He puts them all outside, and he took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him, and he went in to where the child was. Notice this. Taking her, this is Tabitha is her name, taking her by the hand. He says to her, Talitha Kumi, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Little girl, arise. Look back at Acts chapter 9, verse 40. Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and he prayed and turning to her, turning to Tabitha, he says, Tabitha, arise. In both instances, the Greek construction is identical. You might, in your different translations, have slight different variations from one passage to the next, but we have here two back-to-back accounts in which Jesus does a miracle, he performs a miracle, and now years later, as Peter is traveling, we don't know how much further down the road this is, as Peter is traveling around amongst all the churches and preaching, he is called upon to perform miracles. And what stands out, what Luke wants to draw your attention to in this particular passage is that when Peter acts, when miracles are performed, he is imitating Christ. He is imitating Jesus. And the reason I want to draw your attention to that this morning is because it is clear in Peter's ministry that as he is working, he is working having gazed upon, having walked with, having known the Lord. I think when I look at this particular passage that... Um, perhaps Peter was maybe unconsciously, maybe instinctively, just dropping into the manner that to him was so special because it was the manner of his master. If you reflect on your own life, I think you would also note that over the years, as you have made different friends who have really inspired you, who have really challenged you, teachers perhaps who have encouraged you and opened your eyes to see new things, to behold new wonders for the first time, as your estimation, as your admiration for these individuals has grown, you probably, if you stop to think about it, would have noticed that in your own manners, you're imitating them. As they have taught you, as you go to teach others, you are imitating them. In when I was in seminary several, many years ago, there was a professor whom I just dearly loved, Dr. Bell, Dr. William Bell. 
He taught me a great deal about systematic theology, and he was a man of some dry wit and humor. I have been fond of quoting his jokes a couple of times. I get the same groans that he got, I'm sure. I will share one of them with you. Dr. Bell was fond of saying to someone when they had accomplished something that they were proud of, but which was not really all that particularly noteworthy, he would say to them, oh, well, congratulations. I guess you've earned yourself an all-expense-paid trip to Detroit for one week. Now, who wants to go to Detroit? Nobody. Nobody, because there's nothing fun in Detroit to go for. There's no reason to go there. So he would say that, and you'd look at him and be like, oh, thanks, I, I guess. You're not sure what to make of that. And then he'd say, do you want to know what the second place prize is? An all-expense-paid trip to Detroit for two weeks. <laughs> so first place, you only have to go for one week, but second place, you have to go for two weeks. Now, you're all sitting here like, oh, okay, that's okay. But I love to tell that joke. I just do. I will say it to my kids. When they are so proud of something that they've done, I'll say, congratulations. You get to go to Detroit for one week. And they're like, yay, Daddy, when do we leave? I said, no, we about this. I'm just going to send you on your own because I don't want to go there. I tease with them all the time. I also have noticed in recent months, whenever someone offers to do something really kind or gracious for me, which I don't necessarily feel I am entitled to, I will say to that person, well, just like the horse trader did, I'm going to just take you in on that offer. Now, if you were here during the merge, I see some of you nodding your heads. You know where I heard that from. Uh, about three years ago, when Bridge Baptist Church merged with First Baptist Church, Pastor Al was fond of saying, you know, we just took him in, and then he would tell a story. It's like the horse trader who, when a man came and offered to buy, buy his lame, good-for-nothing horse, as Pastor Al tells the joke, he just took him in and said, yeah, I'll take you up on that offer. And so in my, own, in my own life, I've noticed on multiple occasions people that I really admire and respect and look up to, I at a bare minimum steal their jokes, if nothing else. So uh, there's that. But they have inspired me in so many other ways. When we look at Peter here in Acts chapter 9, as he is ministering, he is clear in his manner to reflect the master that he has spent so much time with. Down to even the expressions, down to the little subtle details is taking the girl's hand or saying to Aeneas the paralytic, pick up your own bed. These are not coincidences. He saw his master do this and it was so special when it happened that as he finds himself in these same sorts of situations, he does the same thing. In the way that the blue bonnet was crushed in the handkerchief, years later, though the bonnet has passed, and here, years later, though Jesus has ascended into heaven, in the same way that the handkerchief retains the scent of the blue bonnet, Christ's disciples retain the fragrance of Christ. That's where these things are similar. 
But church, let us not make the mistake of thinking that just because we follow Jesus, we have all things in our own power. If you look closely at this text, you will find not only the similarities between Peter and Jesus, you will find differences as well. Looking back at the text in particular, it says, if you go back to verse 32, Peter went here and there among them all, and he came also to the saints who, were, who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, notice this, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. If you look at the account of Jesus and what he actually did, in Jesus' account, he says, do you want to be healed? Talking to the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethsaida. And the guy says, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool. And Jesus says to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. Jesus doesn't pray to anyone. Jesus doesn't say, Jesus heals you. Jesus speaks, and it is done. But when Peter speaks, he must always refer back to the one who actually has the power to heal. And it is not Peter. It is Christ. And so in the same way that you and I are called to imitate Christ, we must never lose sight of the fact that the one whom we are imitating, he alone has the power to work. He alone has the power to perform miracles. It is not you and it is not me. It is Christ. And we see the same thing in the very next miracle. If you jump down, verse 36, Joppa, the disciple, they call him. They say, come without delay. Peter goes. Verse 40, Peter put them all outside, same thing that Jesus did. Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down, and he prayed. When you go back and you look at the account of Christ raising the little girl, he does not pray. But Peter had to turn to the Lord. And so we see the similarities. He is very clearly imitating Christ. But we see the difference is that Christ is still the one working. See, Peter isn't doing the miracle. Peter is imitating Christ. But it is still Christ who is doing the miracle. When they look at Peter, and as Luke records this account for us of Peter performing these miracles, we are not to see an apostle doing great and wonderful things. And we're not to take from that that you and I are to go out and to do great and wonderful things. What Luke wants us to see is that when we have been with Christ, our mannerisms, our behavior, our conduct will change. We will begin to imitate Christ. But whatever good deed, whatever ministry we engage in, whatever service we perform, if it brings true and lasting blessing, it is because Christ worked through us. And we owe all the glory and all the credit back to Jesus. You know, 15, I've been in ministry for 17 years now. 17 years I've been serving in ministry. When I was 19, I first shared with my youth group that I had felt God calling me into ministry. And, and just so you know, we're all called into ministry. Some of us are called into pastoral ministry, but when I use this word ministry, I'm referring to every single person in here. Christ calls all of us to some service for his glory. I specifically sensed when I was 19 a calling to go into pastoral ministry. I first 
confessed that to my youth group, and eventually I went down and confessed it to the church that I was with at that time. Soon after, I uh, had a little detour that took place in my life, again, under God's direction. This little known event called 9-11 happened, and I found myself enlisting in the United States Marines three years serving our country in a time of war, come back, go back to school, go back to Dallas Baptist University, get my degree. Later, as I was in college getting my degree in biblical studies, God continued to refine this call in my life. He began to open those first doors of ministry. I served as an intern and then as a youth pastor and then as a college pastor working up the grade, the age levels, I should say, one by one. I volunteered, I served as an intern, I even served as a paid person on church staff. Eventually, the Lord brought me here to Kamloops where we were interviewed and commissioned by the North American Mission Board. And as a NAM missionary, I planted a church together with some really great friends, the Blyenbergs and a few others. And the Lord has been with me through it all. You know, the thing that really catches my eye, though, as I look back on it, if I could go back 17 years to when I first sensed God calling me in a pastoral ministry, what I wish had been more impressed upon me and what I pray I'm growing more into day by day is that I am not my own. And if I am to minister and to serve, following the example that Peter gives us here in Acts, and if you are to minister and to serve, if any of us would like to carry some of the fragrance of Christ with us into whatever service we are performing, we will only do that when we first recognize that we belong to him, that we are his captives. I invite you to turn with me. This image somebody should have shared with me when I first sensed God's calling on my life in ministry. This is an image which should guide and shape you as well as you enter into ministry. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is uh, recounting to the church at Corinth struggles that he had. In verse 12, it says, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit wasn't at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there, so I took my leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. So Paul essentially recounts his struggles in Troas. And then in verse 14, he brings to us a very interesting image of what life is to be like for anyone who would minister, who would serve on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 14, having just said, I've had these struggles in Troas, things didn't go according to plan, my spirit wasn't at rest, he says in verse 14, but, contrary to the fact that things weren't going well, but I give thanks to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession 
Now you read that verse and you think, oh, that sounds wonderful. Jesus is holding a parade and he's going to lead us down Main Street in a parade. This is wonderful. The problem with that reading of this verse is you are taking your 21st century understanding of a parade and you're reading it back into the text. They had parades back in the first century, but the only kind of parades they really had back there in those days were the kind in which Caesar would come home from having conquered some faraway land, and in order to celebrate his victory, he would parade down the middle of Rome, and in his wake, he would have, in chains, bound and led along by Roman centurions, slaves and prisoners whom he had captured. And as they were making their way along, barbarically, gruesomely, it was the custom of Caesar as a display of his glory to pardon some of those slaves and to execute others of those slaves. This is the only kind of parade that we know in the first century. So when Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumphant procession, in a parade, The image that you need to have there is not that we're just all cheerfully walking down Main Street. Yay, look at us. We have succeeded. Go me, go my family, go my house, go my church. That is not the idea that Paul has in this particular text. What he wants you to understand is that whatever happens, and he references this event in Troas and how it didn't go well for him, He says, whatever happens, whether it goes good or whether it goes bad, we can always give thanks to Christ because we are his captives and he is always victorious. What Paul is saying is, whether we are experiencing ups or downs, at the very minimum, we can still proclaim to the world the greatness of Jesus Because no matter what else has happened, we can testify that Christ has conquered our hearts. Whether things go well or bad for our dear friends, the Konyes. As we're praying and reflecting on the Roths down in Surrey, whether things go well or bad with regards to the cancer. At the end of the day, good or bad, all of us can say, Jesus Christ is still good because he has still changed my heart. He has made me his own and he leads me where he wills to reflect his glory to the world. Paul says, thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphant procession. If your desire for your life is your own. If you simply want better comfort, more convenience, less wait time at the drive-thru, if those are the things you aspire to, then I don't know you will always experience all the success that you want in life. If you want your kids to grow up perfect and happy and healthy, then I don't know that you will experience unmitigated success in all those areas. As you're entering into your senior years, if you want to go to your grave with no 
aches and pains, no stiffness when you get up out of the bed in the morning. I don't think you're going to be very satisfied in that. In every single situation, if our desire is to reflect Christ, in every situation, if our heartbeat is to proclaim the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, then guess what? We can do that in any situation, in any circumstance. But what I have found in 17 years of ministry is that not every single Christian absolutely has it as their heart's passion and desire to proclaim and reflect the beauty of Christ. We say that. But very oftentimes when we come to prayer or when we come to fellowship, we come to complain. Paul is saying, things didn't go so well for me, but you know what? Jesus has conquered me and he leads me where he wills in his parade. Very next verse, he says, through us, Jesus spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Church, as we come to a conclusion this morning, whatever limitations, whatever struggles, whatever trials, whatever difficulties you may know, the calling on all of our lives is to first reflect the beauty of our Savior, that when people are with us, they would sense something of the fragrance of Christ upon us, that looking at us, they would be able to say, this man or this woman has clearly been with Jesus. Our heart's passion should always be, no matter where Jesus takes us, no matter what our circumstances, all the power, all the glory, and all the credit go to him. And he is king. And he is sovereign. As we close this morning, with all of that said, my prayer is that you would be crushed by Christ in order that you would retain his fragrance and not your own. Would you pray with me, church? Father, we say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for always leading us in triumphant procession. And as we reflect and meditate on the example that Peter has given to us, as Luke records for us in Acts chapter 9, Lord, our prayer is that we would be like Christ, closely observing your manner, O Lord. That as we serve, as we give, as we labor, whatever we do, whatever talent or gift we employ, that as we employ it, we would do so in clear, unmistakable imitation of you, O Lord. That when people see us, they wouldn't see us, but they would see you. And Lord, when we know successes, when we know victory, I pray that our testimony would be first to point all the credit back to you. And God, when according to your divine and loving providence, we meet with failure and disaster, when things are not going well, oh Lord, I pray that we would be reminded no matter what that you are God 
and that we can still testify. Whatever failures, whatever the circumstances, you are still victorious because you have conquered our hearts and redeemed us to be your own. Lord, we pray all this would point to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.